Lady Justice is often depicted wearing a blindfold, signifying that in our country, judges are neutral, impartial arbiters. Everyone deserves a fair shake, and judges aren't supposed to put a thumb on the scale for one party over another. Unfortunately, through a series of cases, the Supreme Court has required judges to peek from behind that metaphorical blindfold and put a thumb on the scale for one party, the most powerful litigant in our nation, the federal government. I'm Elizabeth Slattery, and this week on DIST, we're looking at National Cable and Telecommunications Association versus Brand X Internet Services. The court's decision is indefensible. I respectfully dissent. Because the majority in this case has not done what a court of law must do, I respectfully dissent. For these reasons and others elaborated in my opinion, I respectfully dissent. We respectfully dissent. I respectfully dissent. I respectfully dissent. I dissent. It was Monday, June 25th, 1984. As is common at the end of June, the justices of the Supreme Court convened at 1 First Street Northeast to announce decisions in outstanding cases. Sandwiched between a contentious case involving retaliation and unfair labor practices and a class action employment discrimination suit came the announcement of Chevron USA, Inc. versus Natural Resources Defense Council, Inc. Justice John Paul Stevens, the baseball-loving, bow-tie-wearing, centrist Ford appointee, announced the unanimous decision for six members of the court. Dissidents, please welcome back Anastasia Bowden. You may recall she was out on maternity leave, and oh yeah, she's now the director of the Cato Institute Center for Constitutional Studies. But, as Anastasia was saying... I said only six members because Justices Thurgood Marshall, William Rehnquist, and Sandra Day O'Connor had recused themselves for a variety of reasons. The question presented was whether EPA's construction of the term stationary source in the Clean Air Act amendments was a reasonable one. The court held that it was, which in turn allowed President Ronald Reagan's EPA to pursue its strategy of treating whole plants and factories with pollution-admitting devices as one stationary source under its bubble concept, rather than treating each device as a separate stationary source. This was not viewed as a particularly controversial or consequential ruling at the time. There weren't even any dissents. Little did the six justices know that this ruling would become a or perhaps the leading case in administrative law, and the ruling would aid the administrative state in its growth over the next three decades. The past few episodes of DIST have explored how power has been consolidated in the administrative state, starting with Congress delegating broad grants of authority to agencies to regulate everything from gas stoves to Greek yogurt. These agencies are often staffed with bureaucrats the president and his appointees can't fire, and many of their practices raise serious due process concerns. In this episode, we'll look at how the scales of justice are tipped in favor of agencies when they land in court, all stemming from a doctrine known as Chevron deference. An agency has no power to act unless and until Congress confers power upon it. Justice Stevens explained in Chevron that, quote, the power of an administrative agency to administer a congressionally created program necessarily requires the formulation of policy and the making of rules to fill any gap left implicitly or explicitly by Congress, end quote. 
The dispute in Chevron dealt with a gap left in the Clean Air Act and its amendments concerning the permitting process for plants and factories in states that did not meet national air quality standards. Reagan's EPA was looking for regulatory flexibility. In brief, at virtually all power plants and factories, there are multiple devices that emit pollution, smokestacks, generators, boilers, and the like. Under the Reagan EPA's interpretation of stationary source, known as the bubble concept, all the emitting devices within a plant or factory's fence line would be regulated as a single stationary source, rather than calling each individual device a stationary source. This afforded factory owners more options to comply with the law's requirements. Several environmental groups filed a petition for review of EPA's bubble concept in the D.C. Circuit, where the case was captioned, Natural Resources Defense Council versus Gorsuch. Yes, Gorsuch, but not the one you're probably familiar with. This was Ann Gorsuch, who was then the administrator of the EPA, and of course, one of her three kids would go on to eclipse her career decades later. Don't worry, that other Gorsuch will enter the story in a bit. Oh, and the judge who wrote the D.C. Circuit's opinion saying EPA's bubble concept was contrary to law was none other than Ruth Bader Ginsburg. No, 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 notorious. Then just two years into her tenure as a judge. But we digress. As we mentioned earlier, the Supreme Court unanimously sided with EPA. The court explained that a challenge must fail when it really centers on the wisdom of the agency's policy rather than whether it is a reasonable choice within a gap left open by Congress. Chevron set out a two-part test to determine if and when a court should defer to an agency's reading of the statute. We asked Aditya Bamzai, a professor of law at the University of Virginia, to break down that test. So Chevron deference is a term used to describe an approach to interpreting statutes in which reviewing courts will give weight to, or we say defer to, administrative agency interpretations of the statute. The courts seem to set forth a simple two-part test. First, the court said, is the question whether Congress has directly spoken to the precise question at issue? And there, if the intent of Congress is clear, that's the end of the matter, because the court, as well as the agency, must give effect to the unambiguously expressed intent of Congress. And then second, the court said, if the court determines Congress has not directly addressed the precise question at issue, the court doesn't simply impose its own construction on the statute as would be necessary if there were no administrative interpretation. But rather, if the statute is silent or ambiguous, then the question for the court is whether the agency's answer is based on a permissible construction of the statute. But as Aditya pointed out... From the start, the opinion's author, the late Justice John Paul Stevens, said that he didn't believe that Chevron was breaking new ground with respect to methodological approach. And there's also the fact that the opinion was decided by a six-justice court with Justices Marshall and Rehnquist and O'Connor not participating, that, that makes it somewhat unlikely that Chevron intended to do that much. In addition, there are a number of justices who later joined the court, like Justice Breyer, and they always treated the Chevron opinion as restating the law rather than breaking new ground. And to be fair, the Chevron court didn't invent the concept of deferring to agencies, as Aditya explained. In the years immediately before the Chevron decision, scholars had noticed that courts would give weight to agency interpretations, and at least one scholar had identified a series of 10 factors that courts considered before parceling out deference. And those factors included the interpretation's contemporaneousness as measured against passage of the relevant statute, its longstanding duration, consistency, 
reliance, importance of the issue, complexity, presence of rulemaking authority in the agency statute, the need for agency action to implement the statute, congressional ratification, and persuasiveness of agency explanation. There is, of course, a big difference between a court finding an agency's interpretation persuasive and being required to accept an agency's interpretation. But we'll get into that in a bit. Here's more from Aditya. If we go further back, I think some patterns start to emerge. For example, I'd say we're familiar in the context of constitutional interpretation with the notion that contemporaneous interpretations of the constitutional text can be given weight. We're also familiar at the same context, constitutional interpretation with the notion that customary practice under constitutional provision can be given weight. And courts would apply the same principles in the context of statutory interpretation. Um, that was the approach taken in the oldest case cited in the Chevron opinion itself, which is called Edwards Lassie versus Darby, an 1827 case, which is cited in a footnote. Some years ago, I wrote a law review article in the Yale Law Journal called The Origins of Judicial Deference to Executive Interpretation that attempted to work through these developments And in candor, the case law is voluminous, and as you can imagine, from literally tens of thousands of decisions involving statutory questions over centuries, it's a bit messy. But I think the pattern that I've just described, which is deference to contemporaneous, customary agency interpretations, was the dominant one. While the six justices who made up the Chevron court may not have thought they were breaking new ground, in practice, it led to a shift in power from courts to agencies. It's a judge's job, after all, to interpret the law. This concept goes all the way back to our nation's early years. In Marbury versus Madison, the court held it has the power to review the constitutionality of federal statutes. Chief Justice John Marshall famously declared, It is emphatically the province and duty of the judicial department to say what the law is. As Justice Antonin Scalia explained in a partial concurrence, partial dissent in a Clean Water Act case in 2013, Making regulatory programs effective is the purpose of rulemaking, in which the agency uses its special expertise to formulate the best rule. But the purpose of interpretation is to determine the fair meaning of the rule, to say what the law is, not to make policy, but to determine what policy has been made and promulgated by the agency, to which the public owes obedience. Simply put, judges should ask if Congress actually empowered the agency to do the thing it says it can do. Yet Chevron deference flips the judge's core duty on its head. Chevron has been described as the counter-marbury for the administrative state because it empowers the administrative department to say what the law is. That means agency bureaucrats, rather than judges, have the final say over the interpretation of the law. And it's not just this foundational concept of judicial review that's at odds with Chevron deference. The Chevron decision completely ignored the Administrative Procedure Act, or the APA, which is the federal law governing agency rulemaking. The APA plainly states that judges, not agency bureaucrats, shall decide all relevant questions of law, interpret constitutional and statutory provisions, and determine the meaning or applicability of the terms of an agency action. Yet the Supreme Court has never reconciled its holding in Chevron with this command in the APA. As Aditya explained, It's long been thought that the broad interpretation of the Chevron Doctrine is in some tension with Section 706 of the APA. This language in the APA was intended to provide for de novo statutory review, coupled with what we've previously discussed, the deference to contemporaneous and customary agency interpretations. In the pre-APA era, 
there were clearly cases involving statutory interpretation that said this. So, for example, um, what comes to mind is there's a 1932 opinion by Chief Justice Hughes, and the court there says that it's a familiar principle that great weight is attached to the construction consistently given to a statute by the executive department charged with its administration. Um, but the court says, oh, there's a qualification of that principle. Um, that's as well established as the principle itself, uh, namely that the court was not bound by an administrative construction. If that construction is not uniform and consistent, it'll be taken into account only to the extent that it's supported by valid reasons. Some defend deference as judges showing respect to a co-equal branch of government. But in many cases, it comes at the expense of being a neutral or fair arbiter. It amounts to a bias in favor of the government and against individuals and businesses that find themselves in the crosshairs of an agency. Defenders also say judges should defer to so-called impartial scientific experts in charge of highly technical areas of regulation. In a case involving deference to an agency's interpretation of its own regulations, Justice Stephen Breyer made the case for putting experts in charge. There are hundreds of thousands, possibly millions, of interpretive regulations. I mean, they give it an example, one of them, where the court deferred to the understanding of the FDA that a particular compound should be treated as a single new active moiety, which consists of a previously approved moiety joined by a non-ester covalent bond to a lysine group. Do you know how much I know about that? <laughs> right, exactly. And, and that's all over the place, so they're not all like that. Do you know how long it took the FTC to make its first rule under rulemaking? I think the answer was seven years. Okay. And I think a lot of them are made more quickly. But uh, what you're doing is saying instead of paying attention to people who know about that, but rejecting it if it's unreasonable, the judges should decide. Justice Neil Gorsuch, a.k.a. Anne's son, retorted, For the life of me, I don't know how high a level a person has to be before we're going to defer to him, or how much notice is fair, or how much expertise counts. I'm, I'm with Justice Breyer on moieties, but the people I think have the most expertise on what relevant evidence is probably John Cain, federal district judge of about 40 years, um, not, not, a, not an agency. These observations came in the oral argument for Kaiser versus Wilkie, a case where the Department of Veterans Affairs said records detailing a veteran's combat history were not relevant to his eligibility for disability benefits, which naturally the VA denied. On appeal, a federal court said relevant, as used in the VA's own regulations, was an ambiguous term, and thus it had no choice but to accept the VA's interpretation. The Supreme Court reversed the lower court, saying it, quote, jumped the gun in declaring the regulation ambiguous, end quote. The point is, an agency can employ people with technical and scientific expertise to come up with policies to implement a statutory mandate. But judges are perfectly capable of interpreting terms like relevant in statutes and regulations. They're not just capable of doing so. It's their job. Chevron and the other deference doctrines, however, force judges to side with an agency simply because the text isn't clear and the agency's reading is reasonable, even if there's a better reading of the language. As the Kaiser case shows, Chevron deference was just the beginning. A constellation of related deference doctrines developed over time. Some predating Chevron became supercharged after that ruling. Here's Aditya. There are cases like Seminole Rock and Hour, and more recently, Kaiser versus Wilkie, which was decided in 2019. 
and they address the question of what kind of deference agencies receive when they're interpreting ambiguities in their own regulations. Um, so that's a circumstance where there's an ambiguous statute, the agency promulgates a regulation to fill in that ambiguity, but with that regulation itself has an ambiguity and the agency seeks to fill in that ambiguity with some sort of guidance. And the question is, what kind of deference does that guidance get? The court's 2001 decision in Mead Corporation announced that only certain types of agency decisions, those that are issued with appropriate formality, would receive Chevron deference. Things that weren't issued with appropriate formality would include informal things like policy statements, informal adjudications, advisory letters, policy briefs, and the like. But back to Aditya. Okay, he's called City of Arlington. Um, held that the question of the degree of deference doesn't change for those uh, issues that might be described as jurisdictional versus those that are described as non-jurisdictional. That means courts will defer to an agency's interpretation of the scope of its own authority, not simply its interpretation of the law. Talk about letting the foxes guard the hen house. So agencies have a relatively free hand when it comes to interpreting the laws they are charged with carrying out, the regulations they write and enforce, and their own jurisdiction. There's one more case we need to talk about, which, as Aditya put it, It tells us quite a bit about the logical implications of Chevron, specifically how the court will treat and understand ambiguity under statute. brings us to National Cable and Telecommunications Association versus Brand X Internet Services, known simply as Brand X. So what happened in that case? Here's some background. The basic dispute uh, arose under a federal telecom statute. I mean, we all know uh, that phone and cable companies can provide internet access over your phone and cable lines. That's Jeff Wall, a partner at Sullivan and Cromwell and former Principal Deputy Solicitor General. Oh, and a little disclaimer from Jeff. I should also say up front, Brandex was the term I clerked at the court. The majority opinion was written by Justice Thomas. I was clerking for Justice Thomas at the time. Um, fortunately, I don't remember anything about it, so I couldn't give you any inside baseball if you wanted it because I clerked so long ago. But with that out of the way, let's get back to Brandex. The question was, how do you classify that under the federal statute? Everybody agreed that the companies were providing what the statute calls an information service. That was the internet access. The issue was whether they were also offering what the statute calls a telecommunication service, which is the transmission of the data across the lines. And the FCC had said there was no separate offering. The consumer was in effect buying a single service from the cable provider, which was internet access, usually bundled with cable or phone service. And the transmission was just a necessary and integral part of that, not a separate offering in addition to the internet access. And here's Aditya. In the order under review, the FCC, the commission, had concluded that cable companies that sold broadband internet don't provide telecommunication services, and hence they're exempt from mandatory common carrier regulations under the statute. In rejecting that interpretation, the commission's interpretation, the Court of Appeals that was being reviewed in the Brand X opinion had relied on one of its own precedents holding the uh, cable modem service was a telecommunication service. And so in doing that, 
the Court of Appeals did not analyze the permissibility of the commission's construction under the deferential framework of Chevron. So the agency issued a rule of sorts interpreting a federal law. That was challenged in court, but the court had already interpreted the relevant language in an earlier case. Instead of saying the statute was ambiguous and deferring to the FCC, the lower court said, we already interpreted this, so no deference. The case, actually two consolidated cases, went up to the Supreme Court. At oral argument, there was a lot of discussion of the reasonableness of the FCC's interpretation of what was an offering. Here's an exchange between Tom Hunger, the lawyer for the FCC, and Justice Scalia. Given that focus on the nature of the offering to the public, the FCC reasonably concluded that the integrated cable modem service offering should be viewed as a whole in determining its classification under the Act. Why, why is that reasonable? I mean, why is it offered to the public if it's offered alone, but it's not offered to the public if, 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 if it's offered with a tie-in? I mean, if, you know, if I say, um, you know, I'm, I, I'm selling you a windshield alone, I guess I'm offering a windshield. But if I say, you know, you've got to buy the windshield uh, with a car, uh, am I any less selling you a windshield? Justice Scalia revisited this with Paul Capuccio, the attorney for National Cable. <laughs> it still doesn't explain to my satisfaction why it becomes a different product. Okay, I, I mean, let me try A different product when you're selling it separately. And it is not a different product when you're not selling they, it separately. Because, you know, it's, 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 it's whether the words offering telecommunications are ambiguous. If, if, I, if I bake cakes and someone was to say, if you offer cakes, you don't offer butter, there's nothing in the English language, Justice Scalia, that makes that unreasonable. That a person who offers cakes to the public does not offer butter to the public. And if you believe that example is correct, then you have to uphold the FCC because what it says is the offer of the final product is not offering to the public the ingredient. Unless you also sell butter. Separately. If you sell butter separately, separately then but your you honor, sell a cake, the, you're uh, selling butter. Here's how Tom Goldstein, the attorney for Brand X, put it. Take anything that Congress regulates. Take, for example, the fact that we regulate the offering of cigarettes to children. Now, a merchandiser couldn't come along and say, I'm not offering cigarettes. What I've done is I've created a smoking service. I've taken the cigarettes and I've put a lighter in it, and you've just got one bill that you have to pay for it. The idea that that would evade what Congress is concerned about is loopy. Now, let me return to then Mr. Capuccio's suggestion, Justice Scalia, that this is an ingredient. It's not a product. The straightforward answer is there's no mention of ingredients or products in the statute. It says telecommunication service, and the question under the definition of telecommunication service is, are you providing telecommunications? Yeah, the information's going back and forth. Is it to the public? Sure. Anybody can buy it. Is there a fee? You bet. That's kind of expensive, actually. And that's all that Congress cared about. Now, this is not a question of whether or not there's butter in a cake, because you... It, 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 there, there are two reasons. The first is fundamentally the telecommunications is the same. It hasn't been cooked into something else. And the second is butter on the cake, not in the cake. <laughs> right. <laughs> the second is the reason all those hypotheticals or wheels and cars and those sorts of things don't, don't make any sense here is that they assume a few things. The first is they're assuming a first sale that gets regulated. Somebody buys the butter. Somebody buys the tires and gets regulated. But under their rules, it's never regulated at all. The telecommunications just 
poof, escapes all regulation. And the second is that in the car example, it's because there's the reason it has intuitive appeal is that there's a regulatory scheme about cars. So Congress has decided how all the inputs will be regulated together. But again, remember the consequence of sticking this into the unregulated information services boxes, it's all gone. There's no regulation of it whatsoever. It's just not a scheme that makes any sense. Butter, cigarettes, broadband, oh my. So what did the court hold? Here's Justice Clarence Thomas announcing the decision. On the Chevron USA, Inc. versus Natural Resources Defense Council, Inc., if a statute's plain terms admit to two or more plausible constructions, we must accept the commission's choice of one of them if the commission's choice is reasonable. The commission's construction was permissible under Chevron. The act is ambiguous about whether cable modem service is telecommunication service and therefore common carriage. And the Commission's interpretation that cable modem service is not telecommunication service within the meaning of the act is reasonable. But not everyone agreed. Justice Scalia dissented, joined in part by Justices Souter and Ginsburg. Let's unpack these opinions. Here's Jeff on the majority opinion. First, it held that Chevron applies. And the, uh, the, the court's reasoning was if we all know Chevron is this two step process. If a court at the first step, the court has to determine whether the statute's ambiguous and there's a gap to fill. And at the second step, it has to determine whether the agency, if there is a gap, whether the agency has filled it in a reasonable way. So what Brand X says is, at that first step, if a court has found the statute unambiguous, then obviously there's no room for an agency to take a different view. But if the court has found the statute ambiguous and proceeded to interpret it because an agency hasn't spoken, so it doesn't have an agency interpretation to look to, then there's still room for the agency to come out differently. And the Supreme Court said in Brand X, that doesn't contradict or overrule the court's decision. The premise of Chevron is that gaps in a statute are for the administering agency to fill. So a court is simply acknowledging a gap and filling it one way in the absence of any guidance from the agency, but that doesn't preclude an agency's filling it another way uh, under Chevron, or at least that was the theory of Brand X. In other words, the lower court erred by not considering whether the statute was ambiguous, and if so, whether the FCC's interpretation was reasonable. Justice Scalia and his fellow dissenters, as you might expect, saw things differently. Here's Aditya. He says that a case could arise where the court denies the agency position Chevron deference because it's not adopted in the appropriate form under Mead. Remember that old decision that we talked about a few moments ago. And the court nevertheless finds that the best interpretation of the statute contradicts the agency's position and holds the challenged agency action unlawful. But then the agency can promptly conclude a rulemaking and adopt a rule that comports with its earlier position, in effect, disagreeing with the court's interpretation, what it thought was the best interpretation of the statute. And so as a result, the agency's free to take the action that the court finds unlawful. As Jeff observed. It was one of these unusual cases in which Justices Thomas and, and Scalia disagreed. And maybe you can take it as sort of a very early sign of 
the discontent that Justice Scalia was starting to feel with some of the deference doctrines that that doesn't really surface for him and for Justice Thomas until until many years later. And I suspect the reason you want to talk about the cases is he disagreed with Justice Thomas's approach to Chevron. In his view, once a court says what a statute means, that fixes the meaning of the statute. And it doesn't matter whether the court is interpreting the statute at so sort of called Chevron step one or Chevron step two. Um, once it has said what it believes the statute to mean, that fixes the meaning of the statute for Justice Scalia. And if you allow an agency to come along and to interpret any ambiguity in a different way, that amounts, he says, to the reversal of a judicial decision by an executive officer. I mean, to him, it's almost an attack on Marbury. Indeed, Justice Scalia accused the majority of, quote, inventing a breathtaking novelty, judicial decisions subject to reversal by executive officers. This is not only bizarre, he explained, it is probably unconstitutional. Scalia continued, judgments within the powers vested in courts by the judiciary article of the Constitution may not lawfully be revised, overturned, or refused faith and credit by another department of government. Aditya summed it up. What we see from Brand X is, as I mentioned earlier, what might be thought of as the logical conclusion of the Chevron doctrine, or or also um, what might be thought of as a way of understanding ambiguity under Chevron, which is that the um, the doctrine permits an agency to reject what might be thought of as the best interpretation of the statute, if in fact there are permissible alternative interpretations. And Brand X was a circumstance in which um, the court said that this was permissible. Brand X not only allows an agency to reject a better interpretation, it allows an agency to implement the Shania Twain approach to policymaking. And if I change my mind a million times, I wanna hear him say. As Justice Scalia noted, this mocks the principle that the statute constrains the agency in any meaningful way. The court decided Brand X in 2005, and it's what you might call the zenith of Chevron's force. But since then, things have started to change. A number of justices seem to be increasingly concerned about the consequences of Chevron deference. For example, Justice Samuel Alito noted in a 2015 concurrence that deference doctrines contribute to the understandable concern about aggrandizement of the power of administrative agencies. Then-Judge Gorsuch wrote in 2016 that Chevron permits executive bureaucracies to swallow huge amounts of core judicial and legislative power and concentrate federal power in a way that seems more than a little difficult to square with the constitution of the framers' design. As a circuit judge and later justice, Brett Kavanaugh has long advocated for judges wringing as much meaning out of the text as they can in order to reduce ambiguities, which in turn reduces the opportunity to defer to agencies. And check out what Justice Thomas wrote when the court turned down Baldwin versus United States, a case asking the justices to overturn Brand X. Although I authored Brand X, it is never too late to surrender former views to a better considered position. Thomas explained... My skepticism of Brand X begins at its foundation, Chevron deference. In 1984, a bare quorum of six justices decided Chevron. 
The decision rests on the fiction that silent or ambiguous statutes are an implicit delegation from Congress to agencies. Chevron is in serious tension with the Constitution, the APA, and over 100 years of judicial decisions. Here's Jeff on his former boss's evolution. By the time of Baldwin, Justice Thomas had already signaled that he had deep concerns, both constitutional and statutory, about Chevron. So it then wasn't a surprise that he had come to doubt and regret his opinion in Brand X because Brand X was an application of or an extension of Chevron. And Justice Thomas had decided by that point that the entire project was mistaken. When I was coming through law school, there were certain things that were just sort of received gospel, both for conservative thought and liberal thought. And one of the things that was very prominent in conservative thought at the at the time was that you should be trying to move decisions away from unelected, unaccountable judges to more uh, politically accountable actors in the form of administrative agencies. So as you say, you know, Justice Scalia off- authored Our, Justice Thomas authored Brand X, um, and it was really the conservatives and even the originalists and the textualists who were kind of leading the charge on that score. And we've completely turned in the course of just a, a couple of decades, uh, I think. And it's now, I think, basically something approaching conservative orthodoxy that Chevron and and Auer are wrong and that courts should be deciding these questions of law without any deference to agencies. So what explains this watershed change? Here's Jeff. So the simple explanation, I won't call it glib, but it's it's sort of simple and you hear it a lot, is that the executive branch, you know, under President Reagan was more conservative than the courts in the 1980s, or at least than the, the judiciary was perceived to be. And that as over time, that dynamic has shifted, the desire to move things from courts to agencies sort of shifted with it. And that if the judiciary is thought to be more conservative than the executive branch, then we want to, uh, we want to try to move cases back there. And this is all a matter of kind of political pragmatism. And I'm not at all discounting that that may be part of it for some. I, I My own view is that it's, it's more complicated than that for a number of different reasons. The first is Chevron wasn't about the text of Section 706 of the APA or the historical practice surrounding deference to the agencies. It is very much about a theory of implicit delegation from Congress to agencies, but the methodology that the court used to get to the theory wasn't the way that many of the justices, or at least the conservative, more conservative justices, would come at it these days in terms of text and and history. And so I think there began to develop questions about whether Chevron was right because it hadn't been decided in the way that some of the justices now approach legal questions. The second sort of a parallel reason is that one of the rationales for Chevron was agency expertise. But by now, it's become almost commonplace that you will see agencies reverse course across uh, administrations, which I think can highlight that this isn't all about or even often about agency expertise. It's often very much about values and policy judgments. In other words, elections have consequences. 
You think about changes in administrations on emissions limits, or I have a case against the SEC now over a rule that it promulgated. It studied it for a long time, and after a 10-year process, it went one way, and then in the last administration, and then in this administration in a matter of months, on the exact same record that it had before it, it switched course. So it wasn't anything about the expertise. It was the same record and it was effectively the same institutional decision makers. What happened was you had a change in administration and they weighed values and policies differently and they came to a different judgment. And I think that wasn't always the rationale for all of the folks who endorsed Chevron. Now, the third thing is for many of the folks who were endorsing Chevron, those policy judgments were part of the rationale. As I said earlier, the idea was that precisely because it was a policy judgment, it should be made by somebody who was more accountable to voters through the executive branch than an unaccountable, unelected uh, judge. And in that sense, Chevron was of a piece with the unitary executive theory, the desire to move agencies more firmly within the control of the president and his Article II powers. Though, dissidents, you know that not everyone within the executive branch is accountable to the president. But back to Jeff. I think notwithstanding the court's separation of powers decisions over the last couple of decades, some conservatives, maybe many conservatives, have come to view agencies as bureaucracies that tilt leftward and that are not very politically accountable, whether because of removal restrictions, civil service protections, the sheer size and scope of the federal government, or some other reason. And so for those folks who are, I think, taking a more pragmatic view, better to take your chances with the the courts than the, the agencies. And the fourth, and this is really important, I think, in terms of the Supreme Court's mindset, these agencies come before it term after term as repeat players. And Chevron gave them quite a bit of interpretive license. And some agencies used that license to push the bounds of statutory interpretation. And in, in many cases, they adopted at least unnatural and sometimes even implausible interpretations of statutes. And I think that all, you know, year after year fuels some skepticism that you're really effectuating Congress's intent. If you see case after case where you think the agency has not adopted the most natural meaning of the words that Congress wrote. And I think if you see case after case, or at least many cases, some critical mass, where you think the agencies are are not getting it right, then I think taken with all of those other strands, it fuels this skepticism. The movement to overturn Chevron, Brand X, and Auer seemed to be picking up steam in the 20-teens. But then the court declined to overturn Seminole Rock and Auer deference in the Kaiser case in 2019 and instead revamped it into a multi-step test. Justice Gorsuch called this a zombified version of Auer. Kaiser was a setback, and then the court declined to take up case after case directly challenging one of the deference doctrines. At the same time, the court started to beef up the major questions doctrine. Dissidents, you'll recall we discussed this doctrine in an episode about the one good year for non-delegation. In brief, the major questions doctrine carves out a category of agency action from Chevron deference by holding that an agency must have clear congressional authorization to exercise authority over matters of sweeping economic and political significance. 
That's because, as Justice Scalia once put it, Congress does not hide elephants in mouse holes. The major questions doctrine has been dispositive in several high-profile cases in just the past two years, including West Virginia versus EPA, the eviction moratorium case, the vaccine mandate case, and even the case this term dealing with Biden's student loan forgiveness program. Last year, the court heard three cases where an agency claimed it was entitled to Chevron deference. And in all three cases, the court sidestepped Chevron. This left many of us scratching our heads. But then the court granted review in Loper Bright Enterprises versus Raimondo, which asked the justices to overrule Chevron. Loper Bright won't be argued until next term, which starts in October. We asked Jeff and Aditya for their predictions about what could happen. It's hard to know in Loper whether the court really will want to get rid of Chevron or will want to confine Chevron to a set of cases where the court might think it's a more natural fit, which is to say where a statute is genuinely ambiguous, there are reasonable interpretations and natural interpretations, and the agency has selected among them for some reason that it has adequately justified in the administrative record. And, you know, it could do that in lots of different ways. And and honestly, it already has been, right? I mean, at step zero, you, you there were cases last term where the court didn't even invoke Chevron and something like the major questions doctrine can mean you don't get to Chevron at all. At step one, I think the Supreme Court is less likely to find statutes ambiguous. It's using all of the tools in the interpretive toolkit before it finds a statute ambiguous. I think that's probably less true in the lower courts than it is at the Supreme Court, by the way, which is a really interesting disconnect. Speaking of a disconnect, there's been an interesting phenomenon that appears to be driven by the Solicitor General's office. The government has been pressing hard for deference in the lower courts, but then, when those same cases reach the Supreme Court, presto, the government argues it doesn't need deference to win. Thus, this preserves the status quo of a vibrant, thriving Chevron deference in the lower courts. The justices only hear about 60 or so cases a term, whereas the lower courts hear thousands of appeals each year. As the late Ninth Circuit Judge Stephen Reinhart famously said of the prospect of being reversed by the justices, They can't catch them all. But back to Jeff. And then at step two, it could require a heightened justification and has in cases like Fox or Encino for agency changes in position. So it could in Looper try to import Kaiser type limits into the Chevron inquiry, whether you think of that as step one or, or step two. So there are a lot of ways the court could go like it did in Kaiser that would narrow Chevron or limit what people have called Chevron's domain without actually getting rid of Chevron altogether and and trying to leave it for cases where the court does perceive a genuine statutory ambiguity that's of the type that an agency ought to fill. Aditya tends to agree that those pressing for Chevron's demise shouldn't get their hopes up too high. It's entirely possible that the court will address this case in a way that merely adds another nuance to the pre-existing framework. And we can then all get together for a podcast next year talking about Chevron step 1.25, if that's the case. But he has concerns about the idea that there's a Chevron regular and Chevron supreme, to steal a phrase from friend of the pod, Chris Walker. It seems unsustainable to me um, because we do have a hierarchical judicial system and you really want the Supreme Court to be clear what the methodological rules are so that lower courts know what to do, so that Different circuits are approaching the question the same way, and we don't get too many variances across the country. Potentially, Loper Bright um, 
allows everybody to get on the same page and have one consistent methodology that's applied in what ultimately might be like thousands and tens of thousands of cases. I remain optimistic that this may be the case to restore the proper balance between judges and agency bureaucrats. Call us Pollyannas. Or Pollyannas. If you want. But neutral, impartial judges are a key part of the foundation of our legal system. And the Supreme Court has an opportunity to tell judges not to peek from behind their metaphorical blindfolds and put a thumb on the scale for the federal government at the expense of individuals and businesses. Over the past few episodes, we've explored how a series of interconnected constitutional failings have driven the growth and consolidation of government power in the administrative state. But there are glimmers of hope with the possibility of a reinvigorated non-delegation doctrine, increased scrutiny of bureaucrats, and revisiting the wisdom of Chevron. What would happen in a world without Chevron? Then Judge Gorsuch asked in a concurrence that catapulted him to national prominence. If this Goliath of modern administrative law were to fall, surely Congress could and would continue to pass statutes for executive agencies to enforce. And just as surely, agencies could and would continue to offer guidance on how they intend to enforce those statutes. The only difference would be that courts would then fulfill their duty to exercise their independent judgment about what the law is. We managed to live with the administrative state before Chevron. We could do it again. Thanks for listening to DIST. Please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. We'd appreciate your feedback, so send questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes to dist at pacificlegal.org. And if you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a five-star rating and tell your friends to check out DIST. I have a face for radio, <laughs> as the saying goes. <laughs> that was like Ron Burgundy, by the way. I was just like literally reading what it says, even though it does. Do you call them dissentals uh, in the Baldwin case? I don't, but I'm a traditionalist. <laughs> if you think we're exaggerating, oops, <laughs> exaggerating. If you think we're exa- exaggerating, exaggerating, exaggerating. Chevron deference. What if we say it together? Okay. All stemming from a doctrine known as Chevron, Chevron deference. deference. <laughs> we our, what's our cadence going to be? Chevron, Chevron deference. deference. <laughs> Let's try it. All stemming from a doctrine known as Chevron. <laughs> what? You're, you're slowing down. Just say it normal I'm and I'll match you. for you. Okay, okay. You just keep going. I'll jump okay. in. Okay. All stemming from a doctrine known as Chevron, Chevron deference. deference. Nailed it. <laughs> Chevron deference.